With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Danny Klinkscale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Insightful and witty commentary, probing interviews, and detours from the beaten path. Welcome to Kansas City Profiles presented by Easton Roofing. Make sure to check out Joe and his great company at Easton Roofing. And don't succumb to folks coming around just knocking on your door after storms. Go with a quality and integrity-based company in Easton Roofing. Uh, I know Joe well. We hang out. We He's a person who's worked on my roof. He's been on my roof, as a matter of fact. Uh, listen to the commercial coming up with him. And we'll be talking more about Easton Roofing, where integrity matters. Yes, indeed. And today, he sponsors... They sponsor our conversation with Mark Tian, former Royal, spent five years with the Royals and was a more than solid contributor during that course of time. He had his ups and downs in his professional baseball career on his way to the major leagues after being traded to the Kansas City Royals and after he left Kansas City where his career kind of had a downward arc. He is one of the most down-to-earth, self-deprecating, and funny people you'll ever talk to. And in the end, some of the things that happened to him and because of him off the field as well are just about as intriguing as what went on on the field. He was a subject, a big subject, of the book Moneyball and... He just tells interesting tales of playing baseball in Italy and starting his wine business and everything else here in this great conversation that's coming your way next. It's Mark Tian, former Kansas City Royal and longtime major leaguer and now the owner of Sorso, the wine bar in Scottsdale, Arizona. So if you're down there, check that out as well. He'll talk about all that coming up next on Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. I'm here with Joe Spiker, owner of Easton Roofing, and boy, we had to negotiate a million things in 2020, but Easton Roofing navigated them all. As 2021 rolls out, what should we expect this coming storm season? Well, Danny, it'll be the same thing as it is every year. <laughs> you know, the storms come, and you've got the guys out knocking on doors, offering quote-unquote free inspections. Be wary as a homeowner. If somebody's knocking on your door, they probably need the work, and if they need the work that bad, they may be willing to do something untoward to get it. So if somebody knocks on your door, says they want to give you a free inspection, just tell them, have a great day, and give us a call. We'll come out for free and give you a good, honest opinion as to whether or not you need to do anything at all with your roof. And what's the best way to get in touch with Easton Roofing? You can always find us online at eastonroofing.com or give us a call at 913-257-5426. Easton Roofing. Integrity matters. Cinematic Visions has been an affordable solution for professional media production in Kansas City since 2003, offering award-winning video production and creation, as well as a wide array of digital and social media management services. From planning, scripting, filming, editing, and post-production to delivering your product to a watching world, Cinematic Visions will provide professional and affordable services for you and your business with the necessary return on investment to make it all worthwhile. Cinematic Vision's goal is to unlock the power of storytelling through video and a strong online presence for your company. Beyond the numbers, they want to inspire and evoke your clients to feel and act. 
Let my friends at Cinematic Visions embed your brand where it belongs, in your customers' minds. You can find them online at cinematicvisions.com or with a quick phone call at 816-600-6300. I'm here with Tim Emerson, the owner of Emerson & Company. And Tim, give us an idea of the range of services that you provide from Emerson & Company. At Emerson & Company, we do credit card processing, payroll services. We do bookkeeping, merchant accounts like point-of-sale systems. What would you say differentiates you from other companies in the field and what makes you special? I think what makes us unique is, is that we're a small local business making regional decisions on companies. We create a profile for the business and then put it out to our different vendors in a very competitive environment and tailor those needs to the specific business, which usually ends up in a great fit or great result for the company. And of course, the idea is to save money, right? <laughs> save money. And uh, actually, sometimes I'm surprised where actually a, a solution that may cost a little bit more ultimately does save money, but, but we're not conditioned to think like that sometimes. <laughs> Emerson and Company. Check them out at emerson-co.com or call them at 816-360-9092. Let's have a brief conversation with David Schmidt from Pro Millennial. David, what differentiates you from other financial organizations? I would say the passion we have for seeing our clients succeed is probably paramount to what we do here. There's no joy greater than watching a client accumulate wealth. I had a client that I've had for many years was able to buy his dream warehouse. Nothing too extravagant, but we had a savings plan in place and was able to see him fulfill his dreams. And what else motivates you in this industry? Well, lately, it's been finding out inconsistencies in the marketplace, ferreting out some more than questionable ideas out there that what we're seeing with Bitcoin and a few of these other cryptocurrencies right now. I'm in the opinion where if it's untraceable, it really needs to be regulated in a big way right now. To get more information and advice from David, visit promillennial.com or call 816-221-7775. That's 816 221 7775. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at danny at dannyclinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Mark, you grew up in Yucaipa, California, but I'm looking at your Wikipedia page here. You were born in Redlands, so that's where the hospital was, right? Yeah, pretty much. You had to go to Redlands to, you know, <laughs> have a baby or go see a movie. So Yucaipa is not the biggest town out in California, but yeah, that was home. What was family life like when you were growing up in Yucaipa? Uh, it was great. I, I was spoiled. I grew up with two brothers. I was in the middle of three boys and, uh, you know, had a family that loved baseball and, and other sports as well. But baseball was really our, our passion. So uh, my youth consisted of a lot of wiffle ball in the backyard and Little League. And Yucaipa is cool. It's a small little town. There's really nothing there outside of houses, and everybody kind of commutes somewhere else for work unless they're a school teacher. Um, so it, it was a great community and, you know, a lot of involved families. And I think that really helped me as a little leaguer to really get a passion for the game and, and you know, dive into baseball. Tell me about your mom and dad. So my mom was a elementary school teacher and my dad was a school counselor. Uh, he, he worked out in Ontario, which is about a 30-minute drive. Well, it used to be 30 minutes now. It's probably 45 to an hour. <laughs> but uh, but my uh, both my parents grew up loving baseball. My parents actually met because my mom's brother uh, played with my dad in a league up in Canada. My dad's Canadian. Um, so the whole family loved baseball. And, and you know, from there, just kind of, you know, obviously education and baseball were the two things because they're, they're the two right. fields they were in. So. Right. 
Did uh, when when was it that you felt like you knew you had some aptitude for the game? Um, you know, like a lot of people, I made little all-star teams and stuff like that. When I but I was never the best player on the team. I was you know I was good and and loved watching the game and, and learning about it. Like I said, my family, my grandfather on my mom's side was passionate about baseball. So always, you know, I remember watching a bunch of games and going over like the guys that were hustling, the guys that were slacking it and whatnot. But I think the real turning point for me was when I was 15. Um, and a, a lot of cities don't even do it, but, you know, Little League trying to get to Williamsport. And then after that, there's juniors and then seniors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, when you're 15, you're playing in seniors. And, and my team out of Ukaipa ended up getting all the way. We won the national championship, and then we lost to, I think it was Venezuela in the championship. Um, but that summer, just, you know, we played in Cal- all of California, then we went to Albuquerque, and then we were out in Florida. And just throughout that summer, I was seeing that, you know, I could compete with the best players from around the country. And, you know, I was showing myself that I was not only good in Ukaipa, but could also be good outside of that. And I think that's when I gained a lot of confidence and and really, you know, started focusing as much as I could to get as bad, as, as good as I could. What was teenage life like in Ukaipa? Was it all baseball, or were you just fun things to do, or what was it like? Uh, it was mainly baseball. It was a lot of awkwardness for me. You know, <laughs> I think that was <laughs> that was my awkward stage. I I had you know tons of friends and stuff, and I always say I had a bunch of girls that told me they'd marry me one day, but I couldn't get a date, you know, in the present. <laughs> nice guys so, finish last, right? Exactly, but I mean, I, I have no complaints. I think it worked out all right for me, but but it was, I mean, it was fun. I have tons of great buddies that, you know, Ukaipa, like I said, is a pretty small town, so it was easy to get to know a lot of people and get to know a lot of families. So, you know, I look back on that time as, you know, a great time in my life, but also, you know, fairly awkward. I, I definitely did not peak in high school. So, <laughs> <laughs> When it came time, uh, when high school was over, what was the decision-making process as far as college or was there professional interest at that point? Yeah, so I was lucky because, like I said, I was a middle child. So my older brother had already gone through the process of getting recruited and everything, and he ended up going to UC Riverside. Um, they were D2 at the time, but ended up, you know, getting up to D1. So I knew that I really, my goal was to go to a D1, and I wanted to be in California just because I wanted to be somewhat close to home. Um, and I I went to, like, a Stanford baseball camp and stuff, when I, and I really, like, I barely played as a junior in high school. So my aspirations to play, right? you know, Division One baseball were probably a little lofty at the time. But, you know, I went to a bunch of camps and played a lot in the summers and everything else. So um, I started getting recruited a little bit. And St. Mary's College up in the Bay Area, which is a good, you know, seven, eight hours away from Ukaipa where I grew up, they sent me a letter. I got a bunch of letters from different places, like Ivy League schools and different things. Um, and I held them all. And, you know, my goal was to go to Cal State Fullerton was the, you know, right. the thing at that time. So, you know, there, UC Santa Barbara, a few different schools, but ultimately St. Mary's was the most active in trying to recruit me, and, and they offered me a, a scholarship uh, for the early signing date, and I, I ended up signing that. And, of course, a couple of schools called after the early signing date because they didn't get the guys they necessarily wanted in the first round, but I was committed to St. Mary's. And really, you know, when I first got the letter, I didn't know much about St. Mary's. I knew they were D1 in California. But once I visited the campus, it was – I mean, it's such a beautiful campus, and it, you feel like you're out in the middle of um, the country, and you're really only a 20-minute ride to San Francisco. So right. really everything about the school worked for me, and, and you know, it, was, it made, made the decision easy for me. 
So obviously you must have blossomed as a player there because you'd end up being a sandwich pick. So what was the baseball journey like at St. Mary's? Yeah, I mean, I guess going back, like out of high school, I I got probably you know, I played on the local scout teams and all that kind of stuff. But I I got maybe one letter. I remember the Minnesota Twins scout had me sign out a a form, but I was like, I'm not going to get drafted high enough to actually go. And you know, nobody was really interested in drafting me at that point, unless it was like a 50th round pick, and you know, I had no other options. But obviously, I already committed to St. Mary's and was looking forward to that. But once I got there. I graduated high school and I was probably I was just over six foot and about 170 pounds. I mean, I was a skinny shortstop at the time. And then I got to St. Mary's and, and I was a September birthday, so I was young for my grade, but I got to St. Mary's and just got on, you know, a lifting regiment, and, uh, eating regiment and everything else and, and just was able to obviously focus on school, but also just be out there every day working on the game and, yeah, I, I grew a couple inches and started filling out, and all of a sudden, you know, my projectability became a lot better. And thankfully, going to St. Mary's, I was able to be on the field and play as a freshman. And you know, just being able to get out there and compete every day was great for my development. What were the years team-wise at St. Mary's like? Um, so the year ahead of me was a pretty good recruiting class, and then my class was a good recruiting class. And so when we were all... I guess when I was a sophomore, we put together a pretty good season. But, it, I mean, St. Mary's is a small private right, school right. to where it's expensive, so you're not getting a ton of great walk-ons. And even, like, I went on scholarship, but I probably could have gone to a Cal State school with no scholarship and paid about the same. So it's definitely fighting an uphill battle. And it's one of those schools, too, where it's so expensive, you have to guarantee that four-year scholarship. So, mm-hmm. you know, whereas... I don't know, a big school, ASU, USC, can offer a guy a scholarship, and then if he's not panning out, they can pull the scholarship, and that kid will probably move on and go to a junior college or another school. At St. Mary's, there was a couple situations where they you know, were kind of like, okay, well, you're not going to be on the team. The guy decided, he's like, well, it's a great education. I'm already here. I'm, I'm just going to stay. You know? Right. So it made, it made it a little hard to build a real winner, but, you know, Kind of like high school, though. I have some made some lifelong friends, and and you know we we competed with some great teams, and and we're in the mix a little bit. So you know it's a fun experience. When it came time to become a professional and get involved in the draft process, what was that like? Um, it was fun too. I mean, you meet agents, and and there's a lot of great agents out there, and and the agent that I decided to go with, I had my whole career, and we're still friends to this day. But you do meet a lot of guys along the way that are just, you know, trying to scheme to get a buck here and there, and and they'll tell you whatever you want to hear so that you'll sign with them. So that that was a process, kind of weeding through, you know, who you could trust and who you couldn't. But honestly, that's good practice as you end up, you know, if you end up getting to the big leagues, you have to figure that out along the whole way as well too. So the recruiting process with agents was a little strange, but you know, I started talking to tons of um, scouts and and everything else. And there's a few other guys on my team that were getting drafted that year as well. But I remember my, my roommate and I were, we had a meeting with a local Oakland A's scout and, you know, good meeting, whatever. And then after the meeting, we looked it up and we realized that that was the money ball draft where they, they had seven first round picks. And we, we said to each other, like, that's great. Like, I'm glad the A's seemed interested, but 
they're going to use all their money signing those first seven round picks. So they're not going to have any money to spend on the rest of the draft. <laughs> so, so we we're kind of like, if we don't go on one of those picks, which seemed outlandish at the time, like if we don't get one of those picks, and I don't want to get drafted by them because they'll have no money left over. And so they had, so they did draft you in the end. And did they not have any money left over? Well, as as it played out, they ended up calling me beforehand and said, "Hey, you know, we have these seven first round picks, you know, four first round picks and three sandwich picks, right? Um, and we'd like to use the last of those picks on you." And somehow, I mean, I had a really, you know, I had a good college career and, and finished the year strong and all that kind of stuff. But usually, guys you hear like the draft goes worse than you expect. Like you got right. someone in your ear telling you're going to go first round or second round and you end up going, you know, 10. But for me, like as the draft kept getting closer, you know, I was going, it was, it was fun. I got to go to all the big league stadiums on the West coast and hit batting practice and all these showcases and stuff like that. So, um, I don't know. It seemed as if like I was getting more hyped, you know, as the draft got closer. So when they called and said, Hey, you know, we're, willing to use this seventh, you know, the supplemental pick on you, um, would you sign for this amount? You know, it, it made it easier because I was like, well, the second round would be a little less than that. So, of course, you know, but, but they, they had to make sure that everybody right. of those seven picks they could sign because obviously wasting a first-round pick is tough for, especially an organization like Oakland A's or, you know, Kansas City Royals. So. Um, but ultimately, yeah, they, they took me with that, I think it was 39th overall and, and, you know, I was excited to be the A's because I had just, you know, finished up my college career just up the street from there. So, right. um, yeah, just hit the ground running pro ball. And what was the process in pro ball like? Uh, you, 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 Just like your baseball career, I know in the minor leagues you had some really good times and you had some times when you were struggling. What was the journey like there? Yeah, I, I made sure to do both of those pretty much right away. So, <laughs> <laughs> I I went to their short season A ball team was in Vancouver, which was great because I wasn't 21 yet. So I was like, oh, this is awesome! I'm in Canada, I can go enjoy you know <laughs> a beer after the game with the guys or whatever. And um, but Vancouver was, I mean, obviously a great city and everything. And it was great because the A's had drafted a ton of college guys, so we're all like the same age, the same excitement to be in pro ball. It was just like a really cool time. But the first two weeks in Vancouver. I couldn't get out. I, I think I hit 400 or something. And I was like, oh, man, this pro ball thing's easy. <laughs> um, and me and Nick Swisher and our other buddy, Jeremy Brown, who he had a little time with the A's, but he's he's like a central part of Moneyball. He's right. kind of overweight catcher from Alabama. And, you know, anyway, so all three of us, like we all start out pretty good, but I, I was playing kind of out of my mind at the time. And we get back from a road trip and the – a manager calls us in and Swisher and Brown think we're in trouble. And I'm walking in like, we're getting moved up. And I don't know where my cockiness came from at the time, but you know, I was, I was confident and we go in the room and of course we were all getting promoted up to, they didn't have a low A. So we were going straight to the California league for high A. And so, you know, just two, we were only here for, for two weeks and, you know, moved up. So I was like, well, this is a great process so far. But, and then, my first two weeks in high A ball, I was the same. Like I was still just hitting everything and everything was falling in. And then of course reality set in and, and they started realizing, okay, this guy just got out of college. You know, he can hit pitches away. Let's try to go inside on him. 
which at that point I couldn't handle at all. And so I went into, I don't know, thankfully that season ended when it ended because I was not (laughs) (laughs) going to turn it around. But like you said, it it was good because I got to enjoy those highs right away, but then also realize, okay, this is a grind and I need to figure out how to get out of these slumps. And I realized real quickly there were some problems with my swing that I had to kind of go back to the drawing board with. So, you know, did that in instructs and everything else. But, but yeah, it was a learning curve right away. Then you had a big year in AA, very big year, and got promoted to AAA, and, and then it was sort of fast-tracking, and you were about to be traded to Kansas City. What kind of clicked for you when you went to Midland? Yeah, I, honestly, I, I I worked really, like I said, in trucks after that first year, and then the next year I went back to the California League, and I hit for a decent average, but not many homers. So the next instructs, the Keith Lippman, the minor league coordinator for the A's sat me down. He's like, look, this next year is really big for you. Either you kind of put it together and, and get put on that prospect. You know, I was kind of a prospect cause I was drafted high, but he's like, either you make yourself a legit prospect or, you know, you kind of start fading back into the pack. And so that second instructs, I just completely re revamped my swing to where I could get to the inside pitch a little bit better, started driving the ball a little better. And just putting myself in a better position to hit. And it was that instructional league. I think I only had two hits the whole time. I, you know, rather than try to grind out of bats and, and, you know, slap one the other way for a hit, I was like, no, I'm going to stick with this approach. I'm going to stick with this swing. I'm going to have failure, but it's going to be better in the long run. And thankfully for me that like the last game of that instructional league, I hit a couple homers and, I was like, okay, like all that work this past month and a half was worth it. And thankfully, come the next spring, it was all lining up. But yeah, in Midland, I think I just started to trust myself a little bit more and trust all the work that I was doing. And and like you said, I put up some big numbers in Midland. And I remember the the roving coach came into Midland and uh, Eric Chavez, of course, was the, the third baseman right. for the A's. And and he he came in and said to all the guys, like, hey. You know, look at TM. Look at what TM's doing right now. He's like, if Eric Chavez gets hurt, you know, they're not going to grab the guy that's holding the spot in AAA. They're going to grab the prospect in AA because he's he's doing the work he needs to do and you know, producing how he needs to do it. And once you know it, about a week later, Eric Chavez gets hurt, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is my time. This is my time. And of course, they did call the guy up from AAA, and you know, <laughs> but at that point, I got promoted to AAA, and I was there for about a month before the trade happened to bring me over to Kansas City. What was it like? You know, they, that's your first taste of, uh, you know, somebody saying we, you know, it's a trade. They're, they're getting value too, but they're in a way saying, well, we don't need you. Uh, what, what, what was that like? Well, I think, honestly, for me, I saw it as a much clearer path to the big leagues. Okay. I mean, with Eric Chavez in spring training, you know, the Oakland A's never extend anybody. They can't afford it. And, of course, the spring training in, was at 04, they give him a extension. And, obviously, well-deserved. He's one of the best players of that era. Um, but I was kind of like, okay, well, now I either need to switch positions or get traded. Right. And, you know, so – but I went into that year. I was like, you know what, I, I just I, – I had still put the pressure on myself to be ready to be in the big leagues in case, you know, they hadn't offered him that extension. So – um, but when, when I get traded, I mean, yeah, there was a part of it cause I love the A's organization and 
it was the only organization that I knew and all my friends were there and everything else. But at the same time, it was exciting for me because I was like, you know what, this is, this is a great opportunity for me to, you know, get a legit shot to not only make the big leagues, but get the opportunity to stay there. And, you know, as, as it panned out, it was, it was great for me because, you know, I finished that year in Omaha, you know, four and then, Oh five, I wasn't supposed to make the team. They had they brought over two kind of career AAA guys, or guys that had a little big league time, but you know had been good players in AAA to fill that role at third base until I was ready. And as it played out, they both got hurt, and I had a good spring. And you know, next thing you know, opening day in 05, I'm I'm getting my first crack at the big leagues. But again, there you know it wasn't going to be the smoothest path. You get a viral infection, back injury, and uh, you're on the disabled list after two weeks. Uh, that's a you know you, you have this dream. You play on opening day. That must have been rough. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the phenomenal thing about the whole thing was uh, we opened up in Detroit. My dad, like I said, is Canadian, and so my whole side of the family, from my dad's side, was able to watch me play my first big league game, that's which cool. was incredible, and. If if I could have picked the two cities to start with, it would have been Detroit and then fly to Anaheim, which is where closest to where my mom grew up and my whole side of the family is there. And that's exactly how it played out. So, wow. You know, we go to Detroit and I play there. And like you said, I get the viral infection. My back seizes up on me or whatever. So it's like, okay, at least I got to play my first game. And then I, I just really wanted to get healthy enough to play a game or two in Anaheim because my my mom's side of the family was there, and, and actually my, my grandfather was pretty sick and had been sick for years, but I wanted to make sure he got to see me play a big league game. Um, and so it, it was a whole process, and like you said, I, I remember Matt Stairs was on the team, and I went on the DL two weeks into my big league career, and Stairs comes over, he's like, you know, it took me 13 years before I went on the DL. Like, <laughs> like, Thanks a lot, buddy, making me feel even better about this. <laughs> but... But yeah, I mean, it, it's all a process, and you gotta, you know, take the highs and the lows. But you know, thankfully, I was able to shake that fairly quickly, and, and at least get back on the field and, and get a ton of experience that rookie year. You did indeed, and but then a rough start in 2006. You got sent down, but then you got hot in Omaha, and when you came back, you were hot too. Yeah, yeah, really. My my rookie year, I finished up decent in September. Like I had a good September, so I I went in that offseason thing. Okay, I've, I've got it figured out, and coming into Oh six, I was confident that I'd get off to a hot start just like I left off. And and yeah, I just couldn't couldn't get it. I mean, hitting early in the season is always a little bit tougher than, you know, hitting in the warm weather in the summer, but you know, I, I just couldn't get it together and and I remember when I got sent down I thought it was the biggest, you know, problem I ever had to deal with, <laughs> you know, cuz at that time I'm young and hadn't really dealt with a ton of real life stuff, but you know, you never want to get demoted. Um but yeah, I I went down there and the first couple days there, I remember I met with 20 different coaches and got a million different suggestions. But at the end of the day, we ended up just kind of settling in. I worked with Terry Bradshaw, who's now obviously the right. hitting coach with the Royals. and I got nothing but great stuff to say about him. But we, we were able to simplify it, and I just got to a better spot. And I, I really I started hitting great in AAA, and I, I realized, I was like, if I can dominate AAA, there's no reason I can't be really good in the big leagues, you know? And... I think something just clicked with my confidence there to where, you know, it's hard as a rookie. You come up and you're playing against all these guys you kind of grew up watching and, and you're convincing yourself you belong and, you know, you're seeing better pitching. But the lifestyle and everything else, is it's just a of all the steps you go through to the minor leagues, the step to the big leagues is by far the biggest talent-wise and lifestyle-wise. So there's a lot to adjust to. But 
you know, I got back to the big leagues and kept it simple and, and had tons of confidence, and it ended up putting together really my best year I had in the big leagues. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. Time to spend a few minutes with my good friend Jeff Dillon from Dillon's Heating and Cooling. And Jeff, what differentiates your company from others in the industry? Plain and simple, we're honest. We have integrity and we're going to do things right the first time. There's way too many companies out there that lie, cheat, hide things from the homeowner or customer. And we're not about that. It's kind of funny sometimes. I actually am so honest with some people, it kind of surprises them. But sometimes it's good for business, sometimes it's bad for business. But ultimately, it's the kind of business that I want to run is an honest one. And that family way of treating things is part of your slogan. And it's also part of one of your great features that you offer to customers. Our slogan is like family. Our most popular maintenance plan is called the family plan. It's very similar to a lot of ones out there. The little tweak that we do to ours, 1% off for every two years, they have a continued maintenance plan with us. If they have a maintenance plan for 10 years and we give them 5% off, no questions asked. You can find out more about Dylan's Heating and Cooling and all their great range of services at Dylan'sHeatingandCooling.com. That's Dylan's with an S. The phone number, 913-214-1343. We're here once again with Dr. Brad Woodle from Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture. Springtime, good weather's finally here. People want to stay active, and it's your job to make sure that they can stay active, be active, and be healthy. Danny, we see a lot of not just weekend warriors, but people that every day are having that want to get back to activity. Whether you're starting with walking, jogging, or maybe that first 5K of the year, we want to help you out. We specialize in taking care of all ages from kids all the way to grandmas and grandpas, but absolutely specialize in getting you back to full function and keeping you in great shape. So in short, how do we go about doing that? The first thing is to schedule a consultation with one of our doctors and therapists so we can see how you move and how you're supposed to move. Based on our assessment, we can put together a short treatment plan and a set of goals to help you both feel better, function better, and most importantly, stay better for this year and many years to come. Learn more at asfca.com slash Danny. That's asfca.com slash Danny. Hey, everyone. This is Matt Llewellyn for the 23rd Street Brewery. Thank you so much for supporting local restaurants, especially through this pandemic. And you know what? We're almost through it. At the 23rd Street Brewery, we've brought in a few more tables. You can wear a mask if you want or not. It's your choice. Other than that, we're open 1130 every single day. So come see us at the 23rd Street Brewery in Lawrence. We're here with Michael Barber, the CEO and founder of Microlight Corporation of America, the world leaders in laser therapy. And Michael, tell us a little bit about your product. Our device is using a particular wavelength and power to reduce pain and swelling. My background is surgical lasers, but I've been involved with this particular device now for about the last 20 years, actually. And I know that it works because I've had it used on me (laughs) as well. And tell us about the relationship you have with your company in Canaway. It's what I call a strategic business relationship in that Canaway, the leader in the field of the cannabinoid systems and CBD oil, but our device used in conjunction with Canaway CBD oil gives a better pain relief outcome for the patient. And if you want to get that pain relief outcome like I did, you can reach their local representative, Sherry McCants at 515-208-6312. That's 515-208-6312. 
If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at danny at dannyclinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Our guest is Mark Tian. Uh, he was a Royal for five years and a Major League Baseball player for a few more than that. And, and now he's involved in a great business, and we'll talk about that, and has had a great post-baseball uh, career. Uh, so that started a pretty nice run for you personally with the Royals. Uh, four pretty good seasons. One of them you didn't hit for much power, but uh, the others you you were a, more than a good solid player, Better, far better than that, a, a really established regular uh, in the major leagues, but the team lost a lot. What is what is it like to be a professional, to have your dreams realized, to be playing well personally, but your team just is, you know, I, I, I saw you said a quote each spring we went to spring training thinking if these 30 things went right, we could win. But, of course, uh, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily happen. How much of a grind is it, but personally, you're personally succeeding, but the team is not? Yeah, I mean, obviously baseball is a team game, but, you know, a lot of it is pretty individualized, you know, mm-hmm. your individual stats and, and you competing individually in the box against the pitcher. Um, so, I mean, of course, the the whole goal is to win a World Series or, you know, have a good team. Um, but, I mean, I, I do remember there were plenty of years it got late in the year and it's like, okay, well, we're obviously not going anywhere as a team, you know, the playoffs or anything like that, but, at the same time, you really need to focus and not give away any at-bats because, you know, every at-bat can dictate right. what your future looks like. Um, so, I mean, I, I, looking back and I think talking to my teammates, you'd say I was a good teammate and, and always tried to lift each other up and everything else. And, you know, it, it does it, – if David DeJesus is swinging the bat well, it only motivates me to swing the bat well. You know, it, like hitting is contagious and uh, success breeds success. So – you know, even though there were definitely times where you had to focus just on yourself and make sure you weren't letting the team's struggles, you know, cause your struggles, you know, it was still pulling for each other because obviously, you know, their success helped you be more successful. So um, it was strange. I, there's definitely some times, and I remember a few years where it seemed like I was the only one that got to talk to the media after we were on a, <laughs> right. you know, another 10 game losing streak or whatever it may be. But, I will say I really embrace though, like in Kansas City, everybody was looking for some kind of positive because obviously it was some bleak years for the Royals. But even even though we weren't putting a great product on the field, like the community and fans, they were all looking for bright spots. So it was like, you know, if, if Buck went off for a month or whatever, DeJesus mm-hmm. put together another solid year. And, you know, they really embraced the guys. And obviously in the middle of all that badness, Grinky had his Cy Young year. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are a few bright spots, but the community really embraced that. That was something I really missed when I got traded to Chicago because Chicago was more, you know, I guess just big picture, like either the team's winning the World Series or we're bitter at the whole team. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm sure there's fans there that are not like that, but just the feel as a player, like Kansas City really wanted any any positive, whereas, you know, once I got to Chicago, it was, it was harder to find that element. You did get traded in the offseason of 2009. You had had that fine four-year stretch of play. You were a good established player, but the team did have some potential options uh, uh, at third base, and they felt like they needed uh, something different, so you got traded for Chris Getz and a relief pitcher, I believe, and what was that particular? Was that more shocking than the first time around, or more jarring because maybe you'd settled into a place that uh, you really enjoyed playing? Yeah, I mean, I I for sure 
you know, I love playing Kansas City. And, and, and when you're playing in the city, you assume that's where you're going to play your whole career. And, and as it ended up panning out for me in Chicago, I, there's a lot of me that wishes I hadn't. But I also understand the business of baseball. Like, I was in my third arbitration year and starting to make some good money. And the the Royals weren't necessarily in a place to, like, spend extra money that they didn't need to because we weren't in a position to really compete. Right, right. So, you know, they were able to get, I think they got they got Chris Getz and, and Josh Fields, right. who's also a third baseman. So right. they were able to get a little younger and a little cheaper. And, you know, those guys had upside to where you never know what's going to click for what guy. Um, so I understood it, and I felt like I was a good piece for the, the White Sox at that time. Like, if I could have settled into third base, that was one position that they, you know, had a void at. So, you know, I, I understood the trade. Of course, I, you know, it's never – it's exciting to start a new chapter, but at the same time, you know, I met my wife in Kansas City, have all kinds of great friends in Kansas City, and, you know, enough, none of that has changed or anything, but, you know, it, it was a big change for my career. Before we get into the time with the White Sox, and you signed a nice contract and such, you just mentioned that you met your wife in Kansas City. I guess you met at the Grand Falloon, and you were both third wheels. But uh, what was <laughs> what was the the process? What was it like meeting your wife? Oh, it was it was great. It's funny because we're both extremely social and and uh, talkative, I guess you would say. And our, the first night we met was great because it was both each of us had a friend that was they were meeting and they didn't want it to be awkward, so they invited each of us and I had just it was the end of 06 and I had just had my shoulder surgery that ended my season in 06 so I had kind of settled in and had the medicine I was supposed to have like painkillers to go to bed and my buddy's like hey you want to go walk down the saloon because we you know <laughs> live a block away and I said no I really don't you know I'm, I'm ready for bed so <laughs> anyway he ends up talking me into it and my wife will say that her friend wanted her to go and she said no also, but then her friend offered to buy her a drink. So she's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go then. <laughs> but it's funny cause we sat and, and we, we sat next to each other for probably an hour and I'm not sure we said a word to each other. And I, you know, I blame the, the painkiller I had to take or whatever. But finally she says, yes. Oh, I went to a small college, which she played volleyball at Georgia Southern. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I said, well, you know, thankfully I went to a small college as well. So I was like, well, I went to a small college, you know, same area as California. And from there we chatted a little bit that night. But, you know, thankfully I didn't really have much on my plate outside of a little rehab at the field every day. So we, we ended up hanging out for a couple of weeks. And then I moved back to Can- or to uh, Phoenix where I was living during the off seasons. But it, it worked out great. We are kind of long distance for that, that off season. But I think it helped us get to know each other, you know, pretty well and, you know, now fast forward a few years later, we've got three kids and, you know, business together and a pretty good life. So yeah, can't great. complain. Uh, you yeah. go to you go to the White Sox and, and, and you feel like third base is an opportunity. They signed you to a nice contract, three years, $14 million, <laughs> something you probably couldn't have got from the Royals, as you mentioned. And, and all yeah. seemed bright. And, but from this point forward, professional baseball became pretty arduous, didn't it? It did. I mean, it, it was weird, you know, going in spring training, and it's different than anything I knew. And I, I probably put some pressure on myself to make sure I proved, you know, I was worth that contract or worth the trade or whatever it might be. And you, you know, I want to make a good first impression, all that kind of stuff. So I think I put too much pressure on myself that spring, and it just—I don't know—it it was a completely different environment and wasn't, you know, something I was used to. So anyway, the season started, and you know, I, I didn't get off to a great start. I you know, was struggling over a third and not hitting great. But I really, I I felt like I was starting to turn the corner. Um, 
you know, April and anyway, I, I just felt like I was starting to turn the corner and starting to square more balls up and, you know, the average was coming around a little bit, starting to get a little more comfortable and all that kind of stuff. And then we're down in Tampa and uh, Evan Longoria rolled over one to third and off that turf, it just popped up and caught me right in my middle finger on my throwing hand. And so I caught it and I threw it to first and it was just a complete lollipop throw over there. And thankfully, Canerco caught it, and we got the out and got out. It was the third out of the inning. So we go in, and I'm leading off our half of the inning. And I remember ground ball batting, man, my finger is killing me. But, you know, I've I've had it, you know, a ground ball hit it before, and no big right. deal. And I remember our trainer yanking on it, thinking it was just jammed. So, anyway, I'm leading off the inning, and I get up there, and I'm like, I can't really do much, so I'm just going to swing first pitch, and, you know, hopefully something good happens or or I get out and can at least go treat my finger. But uh, I remember James Shields was pitching. He threw a cutter inside, and I rolled it over and happened to find the hole between first and second. So I'm out on, the, on first base, and I'm just thinking, like, okay, like eventually these stingers end up going away. You know, it, it'll it be fine. Ended up getting stranded on second. And the inning ends, I run back in. I'm like, hey, my, I still can't really feel my finger. So the trainer's yanking on it more, and I go out uh, and try to throw the ball across the, the diamond and – it's going every which way. Like I tried through two different throws and I just have no feel in my finger. So they take me in, pull me out of the game, go in, get an x-ray and, and I've shattered the tip of my finger wow. broken in like three, four places and they got to put pins in it. And so ultimately I had to miss three months and that's the most frustrating thing ever. Cause I, you know, my rest of my body's completely healthy. You know, I'm feeling good, but my stupid tip of my finger I can't feel it or, you know, I obviously can't do anything with it. So I can't throw, I can't grip a bat. So I just have to sit there for three months. And, and, you know, I, I caught a lot of good breaks along the way. This is a pretty bad break. <laughs> and, and as it played out, you know, I, I hadn't started the year good. And right as I felt like I started clicking and get hurt. So by the time I came back from that three months off, they, you know, Omar Vizcala started playing third and, and, the team was playing pretty well, so ultimately I came back and really went from an everyday player to no position. And you know, I I will say once I became a bench player, I, I it was just a whole different mentality, and I wasn't overly you know productive coming off the bench. So um, yeah, from there from there the trajectory of the career definitely changed. Yeah, and it was kind of a bounce around type of thing, and you go in some of the minors playing a little independent ball. Uh, how long was it before this was? And, and eventually, you'd be uh, your final release came in 2014. How how rough a road was that, and and how eventually was it sort of adding up to the fact that you realized that it uh, it just wasn't meant to be anymore? Yeah, I mean, so that was ten, and then so in eleven, I assumed I could earn a starting spot back, and right. you know, I went in the spring and you know played decent, but ultimately didn't really. I think their plan was just to have a younger guy play there and. And so by, by trade deadline of 11, um, I ended up getting, it was a three, three-way trade and they'd more or less kind of dub my contract to Toronto. And so I finished 11 in Toronto and I, I kind of asked for my release from Toronto cause they didn't have really any playing time. My thought was if I can get to the national league and be a bench player, but get obviously national league bench players play every day. Whereas American league bench players, you play, you know, once or twice a week. So my hope was if I could get to the National League and get a little more regular playing time, um, I could be productive and kind of earn my way back. But uh, as it played out, I, I went to the Nationals in the spring training in 12, and 
had a terrible spring, ended up in Syracuse, New York. Uh, the one good thing about Syracuse, New York, was that's where um, my wife and I welcomed our first child. <laughs> we have to explain to him all the time, like, yeah, you're from Syracuse, but <laughs> we'll explain later. But, um, but yeah, ended up, I thought I'd go there for a couple months and get pulled up, but of course, at that time, the Nationals had Bryce Harper and a few other big prospects, so you know, when it came time to call guys up, they were calling up their younger guys. So, you know, from there, I, I the next year I was at spring with the Diamondbacks, and yeah, I mean, it was it was one thing after another, and it was kind of one of those things like, okay, one of these breaks is going to be great for me. Like at one point, the I signed with the Rangers, and because they're I forget maybe Hank Blaylock had got hurt or something. I was like, okay, uh, they'll pull me up. I got experience, so I go there for ten days, and instead of getting called up, I got released. And it was just, you know, it, it's amazing when you're when you're in the mm-hmm. the plan, right? Things kind of fall into place, and when you're not in the plan and you're outside looking in, you're very expendable. So, you know, and in some ways, I look at my career and it's great because I was able to experience both ends of that. Like I was able to be a prospect and see things fall into place, and also be, you know, the last guy on the team or you know the the guy that's not in the plan that's just kind of holds the spot. And so I feel like I can relate to you know, most ball players and wherever they are in their career. But, you know, it was a great run. And like I said, I, I caught a bad break there with the finger and stuff. But, you know, I, I had a lot of things fall my way throughout my career that, you know, kind of set it up. And then your final release came from the Giants in 2014, and you had uh, planned a trip or had a trip planned to, well, I planned a trip, I guess, because you felt like you would have been playing baseball. But you went to sure. you went to Italy, and it turned out to be sort of a serendipitous thing. You uh, didn't really have a plan. I'm familiar with that. I wrote a book about that, so uh, making a trip. But uh, uh, you ended up in, a, in a, a wine bar in a town in Italy, and it really kind of captivated you a little bit, right, you and your wife? Yeah, exactly. So I was in spring in 2014 with the Giants and just minor league camp, and I knew, obviously, my career was not heading the right direction. And I got released there, and at that point, I was like, okay, I think my playing days in you know, the United States are over. Uh, but we had just had uh, dinner with Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, and he's he's just a great person. And, and he'd gone to Italy to write as soon as he graduated college. Um, and he started talking about how he knew a guy who went over there and there's leagues in Italy that, you know, of course nobody really cares about baseball over there, but there's, there's actually a few different leagues. So about a week after I got released, you know, I, I had prepared to play that season. So my wife was like, well, if, if we can look into this and you can go over there and play this season, since you're already ready to play anyway, you know, let's do it. So we booked a flight and a week later we were over in Italy for a week and we just rented a car and drove to all the cities that had teams and kind of just rolled up on the stadium and saw who was there and talked to who we could talk to. I had set up with one team in Bologna to like practice with their, their guys. And right. the guy was like, we've already used our visas, but we'd love to have a base, a major league baseball player, like work out with the guys. So, so that trip was amazing. And, you know, and one day we're in Parma and we'd had some wine with lunch, stop by the field. Turns out the manager was a Dominican guy who spoke English. So he's like, you want to hit? And I was like, sure. So, um, you know, hit batting practice with dog runner all over the field. And it was me and one other guy. <laughs> I mean, it was just a cool experience. But as it played out, we, like you said, we, we stumbled upon this wine bar in Greve and Chianti and really loved it. And my wife, Lauren, and I had always talked about owning a business together once I was done playing because 
that was the one thing she didn't love about the baseball life was, you know, she couldn't have her own thing because she, you know, I was dragging her all over the country. So, right. Um, but we kind of were in this wine bar and had just enough wine. We're like, you know what? We should do this in Scottsdale, Arizona, where we live, you know, really has a need for this. So, um, yeah, we came home and wrote a business plan and actually by the next spring training, we were opening it as it worked out. It was good. I think she didn't want me to have idle hands or, you know, Mm -hmm. miss baseball too much. So, by the next spring, by the next opening, we actually opened Source of Wine Room on opening day of 2015. So I had no time to, you know, <laughs> whine about not being in a baseball uniform. We were, you know, hot and heavy into that. And, you know, not the business world and the restaurant world and everything else is a difficult thing. And you are now past six years with your business. It, it, it obviously has been successful, but there must have been times when it was difficult, too. What has it been like to be a business owner? It, well, like you said, I guess like baseball, the ups and downs and everything else. But I mean, for the most part, we, we still look at each other and we're happy we did it. We've provided jobs for a lot of great employees and stuff. And, and really, the place we created it was something that, you know, it was what we wanted and turned out the way we wanted it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, of course, you know, you deal with plenty of such a wide range of people. So you have the people that are incredibly grateful and then you have the people that you can't please no matter what you do. So, you know, it's, it's weeding through that. And then a few things have come up with employees that I never dreamed we'd be dealing with. And, you know, there's for sure times like, why are we doing this? But, <laughs> but I think overall, we're, we're really happy that we dove into it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been, a, it's been a good experience. And, and yeah, like you said, we're, we're in our seventh year of it. And I feel like we had just gotten to the point to really be able to know what to expect from the business. And then the pandemic hit us. Right. But, you know, thankfully we seem to be on the back end of that and, and business is good, and we have more employees now than we did prior to the shutdown and stuff. So, yeah, I really can't complain. I know it, it was a lot harder than a lot of other businesses. So in 2017, you got one little last taste of baseball, and that was back in Italy. Yeah, yeah, that kind of came together randomly. It was a, a, a team called, and it was a team I had talked to when we had gone out on our first trip. Um, but they called and asked if I still had interest in baseball, in Italy. And I, I said, well, sure. And I honestly assumed they were talking about me, uh, like coaching or something like that. Um, and as, as it developed, you know, I, I did a zoom call with them and, and they said, no, we, we'd like you to play you know, third base and hit in the middle of the lineup. And, you know, we haven't been able to find stats on you the last couple of years, but, you know, interested in what you've been doing. And so just to keep the conversation going, I'm like, Oh yeah, I've been playing men's league, but it's not really, you know, they don't advertise that or, or, you know, you can't find the stats online or anything like that. But I mean, truthfully, since being released in 2014, I hadn't really swung a bat. I mean, you know, <laughs> right. you, you do something for every day of your life for such a long time. Once, once that's kind of gone, you you know, I wasn't going out and hitting batting practices for nostalgia. So, <laughs> right. But you know, once they, once they made the offer and, and my wife was like, look, that's a great, you know, live in Italy for six months and just, you know, see a whole completely different culture and experience a beautiful country. So um, she says it well. One of our friends is like, that's great that you guys are going to Italy so Mark can play more baseball. And she said, no, we're <laughs> Mark is playing baseball so we can go to Italy, not <laughs> you know, not the other way around. So, right. um, But, yeah, as, as it played out, it was a great experience. I mean, we went over there, and our, our youngest, our daughter, was only six months old. By the time we got home, she'd been in Italy more than she'd been in the United States. So it was – it was definitely an adventure, but I mean, just 
a great experience. One of the one of the cooler things I've been able to do. Yeah, your last year with the Royals, you won the Hutch Award, which is for uh, you know being a active on on and off the field, and uh, it's a really prestigious award. And you seem to have continued that type of thing. You do a lot of charity work. You, I know you uh, had a charitable thing you were involved with uh, about domestic violence, and you're still uh, involved with that as well. What was it that has motivated you to do those kind of things off the field? Well, like when I, I spent my first off-season in Kansas City in 2007, I believe it was, and because my wife was working in pharmaceutical sales and she had a good job there, so I couldn't drag her back to Arizona uh, for my off-season. But while I was living there in the off-season, you know, I didn't have much to do outside of, you know, work out and get ready for the season. And I, I, had, I had been involved with uh, Challenger, the YMC uh, division called Challenger, which is, you know, kids with special needs and, mm-hmm. and I'd been involved with them and kind of lended my name to a few events and stuff, but I hadn't really got that involved. But I got to meet uh, Scott and Lisa Hallier and they had a, their oldest son was in the program and they're season ticket holders and, and, you know, now some of our best friends. But at the time, you know, I, I just kept seeing Scott, you know, wherever I went. So <laughs> that off season we were hanging out and he's like, you know, we should, we should, you know, try to get something together and, you know, try to raise some funds or, you know, get something rolling. And, and honestly, I'll, I'll give credit to my wife because she, she was like, you know, you can do this. You can put something together and, and, you know, actually raise real money that could make an impact. So we started a fashion show, and I think we did it January of 08 might have been our first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I know nothing about fashion, but, <laughs> you know, it was an excuse to get – guys out and get them dressed up and raise some money and and that that event uh challenge your fashion is still is still going right. and rex hudler has taken it over since since we've been gone like i as i left you know ho chaver kind of transitioned into it i think duffy was involved for a while but you know rex has really run with it which is great so you know it's still making money for the ymca which is amazing um but you know kind of off of that success when we like as in my career i started bouncing around and everything realized you know, it's hard to start something and then leave that city. Um, so we started um, this driving out domestic violence in, in Scottsdale. And, you know, my, my wife, unfortunately, had to deal with some domestic violence in her home when she was young. And, you know, she thankfully let it motivate her to be stronger and, and, and you know, want to make an impact for other people. So, you know, we started an event the first year. We did a golf tournament and an event in our backyard. And it's, it's grown immensely and we weren't able to do the event last year, but we're going to do the event in in February and it'll be our 10th annual driving out domestic violence. And, and we've been able to raise, I don't know, three to $4 million for Crystalis, which is a domestic abuse agency in Phoenix that's been around for over 30 years. So it's, I, I, I look back at my career and, you know, I was happy with stuff I was able to do on the field, but you know, really my wife and, and people that we surround ourselves with have been able to, you know, use that platform to really make a big impact off the field. And I honestly, I think looking back, I feel like I've made more of an impact off the field than I ever did, you know, playing ball. And finally, you uh, are, you have a business that you've had for a while now. You've had all these great life experiences. You're raising a young family. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of satisfaction in your life right now. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, yeah, I I wake up most days pretty happy, and you know, <laughs> not not you know, 
too much missing, you know. I, I do think, like, the, the kids are starting to get to an age where they're, you know, at, we homeschooled this whole past year, so we're excited for the kids to be back in school. But I do look at that and I'm like, man, once they're back in school, uh, my wife and I are going to have a lot of free time. So, you know, w- what is what is next? But, you know, I, I, I'm comforted by, like, to this point, I'm pretty pretty happy with the way things have panned out. And, you know, I'm excited for whatever we decide to do is next and you know when I when I try to plan it out it's kind of funny because I'm like if I would have tried to plan my life after this point when I was you know sitting at you got by high school I would have never guessed so you know it's kind of excited to see what comes next this podcast was made possible by our great sponsors like Easton Roofing the presenting sponsor of Kansas City Profiles at the Danny Kling scale reasonably irreverent podcast Easton Roofing where integrity matters. We hope you enjoyed the latest Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Come back soon for something fresh and new. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.